uh, hands up here, so I'll turn this off, uh, hands up here, those of you uh, who have families uh, where, where you, when you grew up in the, in the family you grew up in, where they handled uh, secrets well, just like were open about things, they talked honestly about stuff, it kind of was just pretty normal, and you could talk about some difficult things, one person. Yeah, in my family. Well, that I didn't grow up in Chloe's family, um, but um, yeah. So, and then hands up those of you who grew up in families which perhaps didn't handle things that so. Behave yourself. Uh, uh, for the benefit of the recording, that's my son George landing me in it. Um, so, um, where perhaps things didn't get handled so clearly or openly or like more straightforwardly. Yeah. Okay, so there's a few of us here tonight where we've grown up in perhaps slightly dysfunctional families where there have been surprises perhaps along the way, you know, oh, so Auntie Mabel really wasn't married to Uncle Frank and, you know, or whatever it was, and some hideous thing comes out at Christmas and it changes the whole family landscape. Well, um, before we get into what we're looking at tonight, let's just do a very quick recap on where we're at. Is this sound on the speakers okay? Is that all right? Good? Yeah? Not too boomy? Slightly. Slightly too boomy. Let's just turn it down a little bit. Is that a bit better? Uh, just turn it down on the bass. Any good? Still too loud? How's that? A bit better? Okay. Um, so our series so far, King David, uh, we started with, in the first session we looked at heads and hands, uh, this idea of David and Goliath and the theme of heads and hands and how that kind of really opened up something around the whole issue of the worship of the, of the god Dagon and how bad that is for you. Um, and then we looked at David and Saul and navigating difficult people and just how difficult that relationship was for David, but how he handled himself really, really well um, and really helped uh, his own kingship uh, have a firm foundation by the way he approached Saul uh, while Saul was still king. Uh, and then we looked at David and Bathsheba in a session called Temptation and Sin, and we explored uh, just how low David fell and what happened with all of that. Uh, and then last week we looked at David and Nathan uh, and a, a session called Forgiveness and Fallout. So uh, David sought forgiveness from God when he realised what, what he'd done wrong. But then there was consequences and fallout which then uh, kind of then followed him through the rest of his life. And over these next two sessions we're going to do uh, a couple of sessions. Tonight we're going to look at two of, well, we're going to look at one of David's sons tonight and another one of David's sons next week. And next week will be the end of the series. will be part six uh, of the series, and that will conclude it. So tonight we're looking at Amnon, and next week we're looking at another of David's sons, Absalom. Uh, now, the teaching tonight is hard. I make no bones about it. It's a tough subject. It's really difficult. But we're going to attempt to navigate it, and I actually think there's some huge value in here uh, for all of us. And it also makes sense of how Absalom is when we come to look at Absalom in a bit more detail next week. Okay? Uh, so tonight's session is called, um, it's part five, and it's called uh, Fixation and Fury. And we're going to pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 13. So please would you uh, turn with me there in your Bibles. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 13, and we'll read through uh, the chapter. Now David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And Amnon, her half-brother, fell desperately in love with her. Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. She was a virgin, and Amnon thought he could never have her. But Amnon had a, craft, a very crafty friend, his cousin, Jonadab. He was the son of David's brother, Shemaiah. 
One day, Jonadab said to Amnon, what's the trouble? Why should the son of a king look so dejected morning after morning? So Amnon told him, I am in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Well, Jonadab said, I'll tell you what to do. Go back to bed and pretend you are ill. When your father comes to see you, ask him to let Tamar come and prepare some food for you. Tell him you'll feel better if she prepares it as you watch and feeds you with her own hands. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be sick. And when the king came to see him, Amnon asked, Please let my sister Tamar come and cook my favourite dish as I watch. Then I can eat it from her own hands. So David agreed and sent Tamar to Amnon's house to prepare some food for him. When Tamar arrived at Amnon's house, she went to the place where he was lying down so that he could watch her mix some dough. Then she baked his favourite dish for him. But when she set the serving tray before him, he refused to eat. Everyone get out of here, Amnon said to his servants, uh, told his servants. So they all left. Then he said to Tamar, now bring the food into my bedroom and feed it to me here. So Tamar took his favourite dish uh, to him. But as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, come to bed with me, my darling sister. Oh no, my brother, she cried, don't be so foolish. Don't be foolish, don't do this to me. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel. Where could I go in my shame? And you would be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Please, just speak to the king about it and he will let you marry me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her, and since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. Then suddenly Amnon's love turned to hate, and he hated her even more than he had loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. No, no, Tamar cried, sending me away is now is worse than what you've already done to me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. He shouted for his servant and demanded, throw this woman out and lock the door behind her. So the servant put her out and locked the door behind her. She was wearing a long, beautiful robe as was the custom uh, in those days for the king's virgin daughters. But now Tamar tore her robe and put ashes on her head, and then with her face in her hands she went away crying. Her brother Absalom saw her and asked, Is it true uh, that Amnon has been with you? Well, my sister, keep quiet for now, since he's your brother. Don't you worry about it. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard what had happened, he was very angry, and though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about this, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he'd done to his sister. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep were being sheared at Baal Hazor near Ephraim, Absalom invited all the king's sons to to come to a feast. He went to the king and said, My sheep shearers are now at work. Would the king and his servants please come to celebrate the occasion with me? The king replied, No, my son. If we all came, we would be too much of a burden on you. Absalom pressed him, but the king would not come, though he gave Absalom his blessing. Well then, Absalom said, if you can't come, how about sending my brother Amnon with us? Why Amnon, the king asked. But Absalom kept on pressing the king until he finally agreed to let all his sons attend, including Amnon. So Absalom prepared a feast fit for a king. Absalom told his men, wait until Amnon gets drunk, then at my signal, kill him. Don't be afraid. I'm the one who has given the command. Take courage and do it. So at Absalom's signal, they murdered Amnon. Then the other sons of the king jumped on their mules and fled. As they were on their way back to Jerusalem, this report report reached David. Absalom has killed all the king's sons. Uh, Not one is left alive. The king got up, tore his robe, and threw himself on the ground. His advisers also tore their clothes in horror and sorrow. But just then, Jonadab, the son of David's brother Shemir, arrived and said, No, don't believe that all the king's sons have been killed. It was only Amnon. Absalom has been plotting this ever since Amnon raped his sister Tamar. No, my lord the king, your sons aren't all dead. It was only Amnon. 
Meanwhile, Absalom escaped. Then the watchman on the Jerusalem wall saw a great crowd coming down the hill on the road from the west. (coughs) He ran to tell the king, I see a crowd of people coming from the Horonaim road along the side of the hill. Look, Jonadab told the king, there they are now. The king's sons are coming, just as I said. Soon they arrived, weeping and sobbing, and the king and all his servants wept bitterly with them. And David mourned many days for his son Amnon. Absalom fled to his grandfather, Talmai, son of Amihud, the king of Geshur. He stayed there in Geshur for three years. And King David, now reconciled to Amnon's death, longed to be reunited with his son Absalom. So the main focus of the action or the storyline tonight is uh, a, pretty dif- a pretty difficult episode, we have to say. Uh, uh, David's first son, uh, his eldest son, the, the one next in line to the throne to him, takes advantage of uh, his half-sister Tamar. Now Tamar was also David's daughter, just as Amnon was his own son, but Tamar was David's daughter from another of his wives. Now Amnon's brother or half-brother, Absalom, waits two years before carrying out his revenge upon Amnon uh, for the violation of his sister. And then Absalom uh, commits what is called fratricide, which is the technical term for when you kill your brother. There's a whole range of words to do with different people you might kill in your family. I know it sounds really grisly, um, but uh, fratricide is when you kill your brother. Um, In fact, that's what happened between Cain and Abel. Uh, This is a dark tale uh, from the history of King David, and it's one of the most difficult stories in the Bible. But I actually think sometimes in those most difficult stories, the Bible gives us things that really help us. They really help us because it's, it navigates you through something difficult, and then you're left with solid teaching and really foundational things that really help you. Okay. I think it's got really important lessons for us today in what I would call healthy family, how to have healthy family. And what you see in 2 Samuel 13 is a highly unhealthy and dysfunctional family and family system, if you like. Now, we could focus on Amnon, and we could pin all the blame on him for what happens, and he is definitely responsible uh, for what he does, no question. But I would also say that for this kind of thing to happen, a wider pattern is in place which has not helped him. It's not helped him live healthily, and it's not helped David's family be healthy. And in, you know, in society today, we're quick and right to be quick to condemn perpetrators of crimes. And it's perhaps true that sexual crimes carry more difficulty or weight or perhaps revulsion than other crimes. I get that. But I want to speak into three things that come with that. Number one, it's absolutely essential that we protect society from the damage that people can cause in this area. No question. It is absolutely unacceptable for people to do the things that Amnon uh, does in this story, and they need to be brought to justice about that. Secondly, it's also really essential that each and every person is taught the value of personal responsibility to themselves and others in their own personal conduct. We all carry that responsibility, and we all need to behave with that responsibility. That's really important too. The third point I want to make is that we need to understand that people who commit these crimes and the one that we see in this story, are often part of a bigger family picture that isn't always immediately apparent, and have sometimes, but not always, been victims of abuse themselves. Now, that's never an excuse, but it can be helpful to us in understanding the wider conditions in which that kind of thinking 
has been allowed to flourish. And I think in this chapter, there's plenty of evidence of those conditions and that family system there. And we'll unpack that and look at that. So what I'm saying is, if we pay attention to understanding the system of the family that we've got, and we pay attention to the healthiness of the whole family in certain key areas, then those patterns that are favourable to this kind of thing happening can be broken down effectively and, and stopped and prevented. 2 Samuel 13 teaches right into this that healthy, wider family is essential for individual health and wholeness. So there's some specific lessons that we can draw from this chapter, and I'm going to couch these lessons in the form of some questions, and there's, there's space on your notes to kind of write down these questions. Um, and then at the end of each question, we're going to suggest some solutions for, for biblical ways to resolve some of these difficulties, to help us really, to help us build family in really healthy ways, okay? So the first one, straight up question, are we confused by the difference between love and lust? That is the first question to try and answer. And uh, let's, so that first question is, are we confused by the difference between love and lust? And actually, Amnon is mighty confused about the difference between the two. Uh, and, and really, these first two verses of this passage illustrate that what he thinks is love isn't really love at all. It's an obsessive fixation. And that's the fixation part of today's series title, Fixation and Fury. Let me just read those to you, uh, those first two verses to you again. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister that he made himself ill, etc., etc. Okay? Now, that first verse contains something fundamentally not right, which we will cover later on this evening, uh, which you can probably guess at already, and we'll get to that in a bit. But the second verse... Uh, reveals what he is feeling very clearly, and it's lust. And it causes obsession to the point of sickness. Now, obsessing over something uh, is when you kind of return to the same issue over and over again cyclically, but you never move forward from it. Now, this is, this is how you can tell the difference between love and lust. Lust is, what can I do to Tamar? Love is, what can I do for Tamar? Very, very different. And so Amnon is experiencing lust. And it, it's, it's quite similar to greed and envy because it's a grasping sin. You know, you know there are certain kinds of sins that have, um, they're, they're, they're to do with us reaching for something for ourselves. Uh, it's a sin that a person expresses when they want something to get something for themselves and they use the wrong means to get it to satisfy a, a valid desire but in totally the wrong way. Uh, let me give you an example. So it's like greed is a grasping sin. Uh, envy is a grasping sin. It's to do with, I, I want this for me. Uh, there's a perception that there's something that they don't have, which if they would have it, would satisfy them. And, and that perception is inaccurate. It's not true. So wanting someone else's possessions or their status for yourself is envy. It's a, I want that for me. That's a grasping sin. Wanting loads and loads of food and drink for yourself beyond a normal, balanced daily hunger, that's gluttony. Wanting a person for yourself sexually is lust. C.S. Lewis gave us a great picture of this kind of unhealthy, obsessive desire uh, in the person of Edmund in, uh, the, um, in The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, always wanting the white witch's Turkish delight. I don't know if you know the film or you've read the story, but uh, along comes the White Witch. She's, he's a bit wowed by her, and he provides this wonderful thing of sort of hot cocoa and, uh, 
this, this amazing Turkish delight. And when he has the Turkish delight, it kind of almost makes him giddy with wanting it more and more and more. And when he revisits Narnia, all he wants is the Turkish delight. And you can see he's got this fixation on this one thing that he wants for himself. And that's quite a good picture of what a grasping sin looks like. In fact, he got so interested in the Turkish delight, he was only interested in how he could get more of it to the exclusion of the personal safety of his own brothers and sisters. Um, So we can bring great clarity to Amnon's attitudes here by looking at what Paul says about love in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says this about love. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. Very key. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That is an entirely different thing from what Amnon is displaying. So Amnon wants Tamar for himself, and he's prepared to be deceitful to get her by pretending to be ill in front of his father. True love looks to the long-term interests of others in a self-sacrificial way. But lust is all about meeting our sexual desires, and sometimes in a very short-term way. So four ways to try and tackle lust. Four ways. You can identify whether it's love or lust by asking this feeling about it. Asking it, sorry. You can identify which it is by asking, is this feeling about what I can get for me? Or is this feeling about what I can give to the other person? Secondly, does what I'm thinking right now about this person stack up well or stack up badly about against 1 Corinthians 13? which is a great definition in the Bible of love. Thirdly, pray to God to help you become purer in your thinking. These things start in, the, in your mental landscape. And that's why Jesus tackles this in the Sermon on the Mount. He kind of gets right back into our thinking. He says, like, if you get angry in your heart, that's, a bad, you know, that's as bad as actually committing you know, a violence against a person. If you have these bad thoughts about women in your mind, lustful thoughts... That's not great. That's where it starts. So tackle this thought in your mind. And it's very interesting to me that in Psalm 51 verse 10, David gives a great verse in response to his recognition of how he slipped in this way, uh, that it's a great verse for people who struggle in this area to learn. Psalm 51 verse 10 says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Great verse for those who struggle in this area. Fourthly, Tell an accountability partner that you have these feelings and that you're worried that it's getting unhealthy. And that person can pray with you. And do you remember that illustration of the balloon that I I showed you and I kind of let it out on poor old Chloe here? Um, But basically that pressure of that that thing that you're holding in your mind, when you tell an accountability person who's trusted and has got your confidence, that will reduce right down. Yes, it's a bit messy. Yes, it it can even be funny sometimes. I know that sounds bizarre, but it can be for the other person because that's just not their struggle. But you've let that out. They've contained it safely. And actually, it's much less of a problem because that then dwindles down in your mind because you've kind of confessed that to to your friend or to your trusted person. Temptation disappears as fast as the balloon going down when we confess to our accountability people. So that's the first thing, how to tell the difference between those two different feelings. Number two, where is the advice coming from in your family system? Where is the advice coming from in your family system? This is absolutely key. 
So this, this part is key to how this flourishes and it grows. This story might not have unfolded in quite the way it does had Jonadab, who is Amnon's cousin, been a man of better integrity or more biblical alignment. There is absolutely no question about it. So the Bible tells us that Jonadab was shrewd. Now, shrewd can sometimes be a positive thing. It's, it's kind of smart, cunning, you know, wise, sharp. But sometimes it's not a good thing. And in this case, Jonadab was shrewd in an unpleasant way. Um, he was cunning shrewd, not kind of wise shrewd. So as Amnon talks to him about his feelings towards Tamar, Jonadab helps him hatch a plan that actually provides all the conditions perfect for this to take place. Now let's imagine for a moment that Jonadab was actually Nathan. And he, if, you know, uh, Nathan had seen Amnon like he was and had said, well, why are you looking like that? Um, he would have said, we know what Nathan's like. He's got n- no problem telling a king what's what. And he would have said to Amnon, you can have no part of this thinking. Get in the temple and get on your face before God in repentance. That's what Nathan would have told Amnon. Would, is that not right? I'm sure he would have said something like that. But what happens is Amnon gets this advice from Jonadab, who actually helps it set, set it up. Now, I don't think necessarily that Jonadab was quite thinking it would go as far as it might do but he kind of ushered in this possibility. He is complicit in prodding Amnon towards this direction. So my question to us all tonight is, is there a person in our wider family who has this tendency to prod us into the wrong thing? Now, it doesn't have to be around this area particularly. It might be, but it may not be around this area. It might be spending too much money. It might be gossip. It might be... um, Uh, being unpleasant about a particular member of the family who doesn't deserve what's being said of them. Could be around any area. Is there a person in our wider family who has a tendency to provoke us or prod prod us into circumstances that then lead to not such great stuff? Now, I want to counsel you, please don't go on a witch hunt for someone who isn't patently (laughs) being like this, okay? If they're not there, they're not there, that's great. On the other hand you might well know exactly who I'm talking about in your family or your circle of friends. And this person's a bad influence. You know that already. This might be a person whose counsel and planning seem appealing at the time, but it doesn't always have fruitful or positive outcomes in the long run. Okay. Now, we do have, on the inside of us, uh, we have Jesus, as we sang at the beginning, we have Christ, Christ in me, the hope of glory. We have Jesus on the inside of us. We have the Holy Spirit on the inside of us. And we have God's discernment about these things on the inside of us as a result of choosing to follow Jesus. And that's a great, great help. So sometimes it's not, what's, uh, it's not the discernment itself that's hard. It's more of a case of it's coming to terms with the fact that someone in our family could even be like this. That's hard to, to figure on that, isn't it? We have this, this, un, this expectation that because we've grown up with family, they should all be nice and it should all be great and we're still used to it. And my experience has been that as I've got a bit older, I've realised that not all the characters or figures in my world have been as nice as I assumed they were as when I was growing up. Now that might be a reflection of my own deep optimism about people and that that's been kind of roughly trashed at times. But... I actually think it's a learning point for all of us. Okay, are all these people speaking the right things into my world? Jonadab does not do this. 
we might have a Jonadab in our family who prods us into wrongful situations and who compromises us in some way. So three safety checks for the potential Jonadabs in your life. Number one, do you feel their advice draws you towards God or away from God? In your gut, in here, when they speak, do you think, yeah, that's godly? Or do you think, oh, I feel a bit uneasy about that? Trust your discernment. And if it's, oh, I feel a little uneasy, I can't, quite often we can't put our finger on it, but we just know, don't we? Mm, I don't feel very easy about this. So does their advice draw you towards God's word or away from it? Is it taking you in a godly direction or taking you away? That's the first one. Number two, have a practice of gaining counsel from several people, not just one, particularly in those really tricky things. You know, Amnon wasn't right to only speak to Jonadab about this. You see, what I think went on here is Amnon picked Jonadab because he knew that Jonadab would provoke him to give the right answer that he wanted. Whereas actually what we need to do is be a little bit more rigorous and ask several people what they think. A third thing I would suggest is why not include some people outside the family in seeking counsel so they can bring a fresh perspective. An elder or a leader in a church or somebody that you know through work or something like that. Involve somebody that's not part of your immediate family circle. That will help. And I think that is why we have the gift of church, because church really helps us in that. Because it's not just our own family. So what's the source of advice? That's number two. Number three, is there something which your family thinks is normal, but which isn't actually biblical? Is there something which your family thinks is normal, but which isn't actually biblical? So remember I said that the opening verse of the chapter had something wrong with it. Well, that thing is that for Amnon and Tamar to have sexual relations is forbidden in the Bible. It's incest. Leviticus 18.9 is quite clear on the prohibition of relations between half-brothers and sisters. It says this in verse 9, Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same home or elsewhere. So what does that, what does that Amnon and Tamar event tell us about the situation in David's household or in his court? It's very interesting to me that for Tamar to suggest that Amnon only has to ask David in order to marry her, that suggests it would have been permissible, potentially, in David's eyes for the two of them to get married, even though there is this clear prohibition in place in the book of Leviticus. So even though we don't see any text explicitly saying God would have disapproved of this union in this particular story, in this chapter... I'm on pretty safe ground to suggest that David and his family's understanding of the Levitical law was not as tight as it should have been. It just wasn't. And so that perhaps shows me that that sense of those guidelines and boundaries and rules and regulations from God had become relaxed. Now, where Amnon is definitely completely wrong in his thinking and his his approach, as we've seen, I mean, he's just completely way out there in, in, in how wrong he is, It's Tamar that's perhaps more misguided as to what's right and wrong in suggesting that they now get married. Now, what what Ammon did was definitely a crime, and it remains strictly forbidden by God. But what Tamar appeals to in seeking marriage to Ammon is a kind of a way out of what would have been her disgrace. 
Uh, and really, by throwing Tamar out afterwards, as he does, Amnon makes it look as though Tamar had perhaps made a shameful proposition to him. There were no witnesses, of course, because Amnon had got rid of them. And so his crime destroys her chances of marriage because she's not no longer a virgin, and therefore she can't be given in marriage. So her appeal is understandable based on what's happened, but it's still the overall framework of her appeal is not a godly appeal. That's not right, and it feels like a an attempt to salvage something and take it back to being something almost acceptable, and yet it still isn't acceptable. It's still not quite right. So that's what we see in the story. So Amnon's definitely guilty of wrongdoing, but Tamar seems to have got a solution to a problem that might have worked, but fundamentally runs aground against the law, as Leviticus spells out for us. She's ultimately proposing an incestuous marriage. So what does that mean for us today? I think it, su- it suggests that even families who have people like David in them, and David was a man after God's own heart, that there's a possibility that, that a family that have got someone relatively healthy at the centre, if we like, or appealing at the centre, they may not have fully grasped God's guidelines for right living. That's a possibility. And it's a wake-up call to all of us to make sure that how we are living is actually biblically aligned to what God does ask of us. You know, once in a while, we as pastors go and visit people, and it emerges that despite coming to church for many years, they're not actually married. And, and it's kind of like, now guys, you do need to get married now. So, you know, and that's a pastor's job. Now, you don't get to see some of that, but Pastor Mark and myself and different members of the team, we might have to relay that requirement to those, to those people. We do it with gen- gentleness and in love and respect, but we're also definite about that's not a biblical union that you've got. And let's make that biblical. That will be a good thing for you to do. So it's a wake-up call, but we also need to ask someone if we're not sure about the biblical guidelines. And we mustn't necessarily assume that our own families have all the right answers. And again, that's one of the reasons why God blesses us with church, because church helps us to have those right answers in a biblical framework. So when we go to church... What we believe and how we think is exposed in a very healthy way to all of God's boundaries and his standards. And we get blessed with the example of Jesus and the presence of the Spirit, and and we get his guidance and his word to help us with that. And I also think that we mustn't forget that God, and this is the mission statement of BCC, that we have the power to be transformed by God, by the renewing of our minds, and so those old frameworks that we thought were kind of okay and acceptable, but now we realise are not, We have the power to then step in to make them biblical and right. So the pastor nags you to be at church just as much as the doctor nags you to eat healthily because they both have the same desire in mind for you and not for them that you have a long and healthy life, that you live within God's healthy boundaries for you. That that is, that is God's heart for you. So that's number three. Number four... And this, was, this goes back to my question at the beginning about secrets and how does your family process them. Number four, does your family avoid talking about difficult issues? Does your family avoid talking about difficult issues? I want to draw your attention to three specific points in this story where people fail to speak up. Number one, Absalom tells Tamar to be quiet. Do you notice that in the story? Be quiet now, my sister. Don't take this thing to heart, he says. I don't think that was a healthy thing. 
to tell her to be quiet. I just don't. And in fact, Absalom does take it to his heart. He really does. Keeping secrets is not a healthy thing for a family. As a broad rule, if you need that as a kind of, you know, Pastor Nick kind of bit of advice, secrets in families don't work in the long run. Do your very, very best to avoid them. Secret keeping creates conditions favourable for abuse to take place. So Absalom telling Tamar to be quiet is no, no benefit in God to do that. Why would he do that? She should be speaking about what's happened to someone who could then help her with it. Quite possibly David. Okay, then we get to number two. It then says when David found out, he was furious. And that's the fury from the title of today's session, Fixation and Fury. Now, it doesn't say he confronted Amnon, perhaps as a healthy father should have done. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say he comforted Tamar, perhaps as a healthy father ought to have done. He doesn't appear to say anything. It just says he was furious. Now, perhaps David felt, I mean, it's difficult because the Bible doesn't give us all the ins and outs of every single dialogue. But I do think what the Bible includes and what it leaves out is highly significant. And we don't get information that David confronted Amnon or David confronted or comforted Tamar. We know that's just not there. And it's safe to assume that it didn't feature enough in the storyline from the Holy Spirit being speaking through the writer of Samuel For that to be left out is very significant. So I'm suggesting to you that perhaps David felt he couldn't really confront his son about the sin he'd committed because he didn't feel qualified to do so after his own indiscretions with Bathsheba. So this is what happens. If you commit a sin, what are the consequences of it? So yeah, you get forgiven by God. Then there are some consequences. What what are those consequences we have to be very mindful of? is there's a possibility of like a shadow lying over our life in that one area, or perhaps those areas where we've sinned and we feel, oh, I I don't feel really competent to speak into this. This is, you know, who am I to have moral authority here? Look at my history. Why why can I? I can't speak about that. But one of the consequences from that is it makes you less strong and less secure in dealing with that in your family or in the generations that follow after you. Maybe another outcome from sin then, in addition to making us naive, we looked at that with David, didn't we, and less objective, is that we also feel within ourselves that we cannot speak out against others doing that same sin as effectively as we might have done. It weakens our own ability to have a moral standing, doesn't it? Uh, Rick Warren has this great uh, statement. Um, I think it's private victory equals public authority. Yeah, great statement. If you don't have that private victory, you're never really going to quite have that public authority because of this very issue. Perhaps David also felt that since Amnon was first in line to the throne after him, it would simply upset the apple cart too much to confront him about it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But that's a kind of twisted logic in my view. People need more rigorous focus as they prepare for public office, not less. And so Absalom encourages Tamar not to say anything. David is angry, but doesn't say anything, I think. And then thirdly, it tells us in verse 22 that Absalom also never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. Says that. Now, what would have happened if any one of those four people had spoken out and actually said what was really going on? Amnon could have spoken of his guilt to his father and said he was profoundly sorry for what he did. Tamar could have spoken of her shame to her father and sought his uh, approval and um, 
uh, him being an ambassador over her life, now it was in a mess, um, and, and his help and, and comfort. Uh, David could have verbalized his anger to his son for what he had done and then explained why what he had done was wrong. Absalom could have expressed how disappointed and angry he was that his sister had been violated instead of letting his hate simmer for two years. But none of them say anything. Now you can imagine a family, at a, like a family get-together with this kind of dynamic at work. Imagine Christmas in David's house a year after this event. <laughs> and actually, that happens for a lot of our families, doesn't it? Now, I'm not saying that some of the secrets in our families are as bad as these, but sometimes they are. And families navigate these with this awkward silence sometimes. Okay? Things just simmer below the surface. So how do we respond differently if we want to build healthy families and healthy churches? I think if it's to do with family, I think the answer is some way of, of finding some way of talking about things. Somehow, some way, talk about it. Now that can be very, very hard to do. Very hard to do. But I would put it to you that the cost of that, that effort of trying to talk about these difficult things with someone that you trust, is much less than the cost of not talking. Because if we look at the cost of not talking, things bottle up so badly that Absalom harbours revenge in his heart and ends up killing Amnon in the end. And he commits murder. If it's in the family of church, I actually think it's best that we try and process things one-to-one and quickly with the person with whom we have our difficulty. And we know that Matthew 18 gives us a framework for us to be able to go and say, now, George, you know, I am so disappointed that you kicked the football through the window and I just, you know, uh, you know you're going to have to pay for it from your pocket money. And we have that, sorry to pick on you, we have the dialogue and it's a one-to-one thing and we deal with George's grievous sin in breaking the window. I'm joking, okay. Um, but that's the process in Matthew 18 for talking through these difficulties. I have spotted a route. Pastor Mark put me onto this, and I've explored this a bit more from one of his sessions before the King David series. I have spotted a route for not speaking that goes back to David and his family. Do you remember how David's oldest brother, Eliab, rebukes David's motives for even being at the Goliath standoff? Says this in 1 Samuel 17, 28, 29. When Eliab, David's eldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here to David? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? Very significant phrase. Some of the translations say, like, can't I even say the words or something like that. That's the NIV, uh, can't I even speak? So that episode, way back when David is just beginning to have his fight with Goliath for himself, his expression is suppressed by his family. And by the way, do you notice all the negative avalanche of horribleness over David from his brothers speaking over him? We've all had people like that speaking over us, and we, we try and fend it off, and then sometimes it's sitting there in our hearts like a rust eating away at our self-esteem, And we have to replace that with what God says about us instead. And that's what things like freedom in Christ are so good at doing. So David's expression is suppressed in his family. Have you noticed this? David tells Saul about his exploits with the lion and the bear. Do you think he tried to tell his brothers and they just ridiculed it and disbelieved it? Or do you think he never ever told them at all? 
I think he probably didn't tell them at all. Because if their perception was, well, you're just looking after a few scraggy sheep, their perception of who David was is, is way apart from the reality of David. David is a warrior in private, and he beats lions and bears, and he defends his sheep to the hill, and he's really strong, and he's actually a great fighter. For his brothers, I don't know whether his brothers have just kind of minimised that or not even noticed it, but God notices what's in the heart, and that's the basis on which Samuel goes and wants to anoint David, and, and, and he's you know, led to David to become the next king of Israel. I wonder how that played out in his family. We don't really know. Also, don't forget the fact that David was not even on the fixtures list when Samuel came to anoint one of, son of, uh, one of Jesse's sons at first. And that shows how little esteem David was held in by the family. He was off doing something else. I think I'm right in saying there were seven sons and David was the eighth and he wasn't even included in the meeting with Samuel. Maybe, you know, like we often make the fact that, that David was a shepherd and how nice and how great. Here's a different reason for you to think about. Maybe there was a reason he was a shepherd, and it was to keep away from his foul family, who routinely blocked his attempts at dialogue and minimised his achievements. Do you know what? If that happened in my family, I'd go and be a shepherd. I would. It's just a thought and an opinion. Okay? I believe there is a root of dialogue being blocked that can be traced back to David's family. And that dysfunction stems back to Jesse's times and what he set up in David's family of origin. That's what I think. Number five, are you worried that your faults and failings will be transmitted into future generations? Are you worried that your faults and failings will be transmitted into future generations? It would seem that David's own sin with Bathsheba, as predicted by Nathan, has turned up in Amnon's behaviour with Tamar. And perhaps there are also echo, echoes of Uriah's death in Absalom's murder of Amnon. Have you noticed the parallels there? Absalom uses other people to get rid of Amnon, just like David used other people to get rid of Uriah. Now, it's certainly true that because families that grow up together, they copy how mum and dad do things. And what mum and dad think is okay becomes normal in a family, even if it's totally not normal. So far and away, the best means of ensuring negative patterns are not continued into future generations is to have your own healthy and vibrant relationship with Jesus and to be part of BCC, a healthy, lively church. <laughs> what I have noticed that some people do that don't have that is the jigsaw of the thing that happened to them in the past becomes the shape of the thing that they react to from that past. And so actually... Like, let me give you an example from my own family. My mum said or maintained she was constantly criticised by her mum, like by my nan. Now, what that's then resulted in, in my, in my mum actually being quite critical, uh, without really realising it, and it being shaped a little bit like how her mum was to her. Okay? Do you get that jigsaw idea? So that one generation shaped by like a jigsaw piece with a bit that sticks out, and the next generation, if it doesn't have Jesus or God or the Holy Spirit or church, simply moulds itself around the rejection of that shape. But can you see that that still defines who they are? What you need is something to go like that. No, Jesus is doing this now. That's what you need. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Okay. 
Jesus' life and example are fully capable of remoulding us into his character and likeness. Uh, and as they do so, those things that might otherwise, otherwise keep us awake at night when we are concerned for our children and our grandchildren, they do become less of a worry. Now, I, I believe that God has uh, dealt with punishment on the cross. So I don't think that some of the things that we might have done that we don't want to pass on to our children, and when they do, it's like a kind of punishment. I don't really, really fully believe that. Um, now, let's just unpack that a bit. Uh, the Old Testament system uh, had a punishment system. Let me start again. Sorry. In the Old Testament system, even where the punishment system uh, was different, as in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and the, and the, uh, the punishment fits the crime, God's love overcomes that in the ancestral or family setting, or perhaps as we, we would call them soul ties, um, even in the Old Testament. So what I'm saying is, yes, there was a balanced system of punishment for problems, and Jesus comes along and changes that with kind of the concept of grace on the cross, so it's different a little bit in the New Testament. But even if we go back to the Old Testament, what we find is that, that God kind of deals with that problem of us worrying about our difficulties going off into the generation. So like David's concern would be, okay, all these shadows, all these difficulties, are they just going to carry on forever? In the Ten Commandments, God deals with that when he says this. Now listen to what he says in Exodus 20, verse 4. He says, you shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything uh, in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children, for the sin of the parents to the fourth, the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations who love me and keep my commandments. So in the Ten Commandments, we see God's stated commitment to undoing that patterning, that jigsawing that goes on between generations. So it's there in the Old Testament, and it's even more there with Jesus in the New Testament. But I think uh, God's punishment does, or his sense of uh, balancing off crimes, does hinge on our relationship with him a bit. So if we hate him and are disobedient, uh, there is no means for what parents do to be overlooked. And it kind of carries on through the generations. But if we love him, then his love extends to thousands of generations beyond, provided we love God and do what he asks. And that's the most effective antidote against that really big worry that we sometimes has, have, particularly as parents, that what we are trying to uh, prevent happening will still happen. Are you still with me? I know that's complicated what I've said, but what I'm trying to say is that one of the things that's happening in this story in, in, with Amnon and Tamar is an outplaying of the worst of David's nightmares. And so that needs to speak to us to say, we don't need to worry about that because if we have Jesus and the Holy Spirit, those things aren't going to happen anything like as much because Jesus will mould that out of us and mould it out of our children. But not only Jesus does that now, we actually see traces of that more than traces of that in that Old Testament commandment. Do you see the love of God in that? Okay. Keep making sure you're okay with Jesus. Bring your children up to know him as much as you're able. And I sincerely believe that you will have your best chance of those things that are in yourself that you wish were not being echoed down the generations, you'll have the best chance that that won't happen if you're following after Jesus. So here's a little thought for you as well. Here's a, here's a Pastor Nick tangent, okay? How wise is it that Absalom goes on to name his own daughter Tamar? Just a straw poll. Who thinks that's a great idea? You're not going to commit yourself now, are you? <laughs> Do you know what? I don't actually think that's a great idea. 
and I'll unpack it. It says in 2 Samuel 14, 27, uh, three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. His daughter's name was Tamar. She became a beautiful woman. Now, my NIV Bible study notes said about this Absalom, naming his own daughter Tamar, says this. Listen to this. Very interesting what they say. By naming his daughter Tamar, Absalom was showing his love and respect for his sister Tamar. This was also a reminder to everyone of the Amnon-Tamar incident. I question whether that was a healthy thing to do. It might have represented a chance for Absalom to move on, perhaps. But is that truly a kind thing to a brand new person to give them a name that is loaded with negative family history? I'm not sure I would do that. It's one thing to have healthy talk, of course, and I'm advocating that in this session. But it's quite another to put a connection onto someone that they had no part in earning. Imagine that little girl, Tamar, growing up. Oh, what is your, why, why does your dad call you that? Oh, yeah, there was some horrible thing with my aunt. <laughs> How is that helpful to her? That is, a, that is not a kind thing that Absalom has done. And do you know what? That's jigsawing right there. Don't you think? Three Tamars in the Bible. Each of them, in my view, present, present back to us a critique of unhealthy male sexuality. Very interesting. This is a sermon in its own right. There is a Tamar of Genesis 38 who disguises, disguises herself as a temple prostitute in order that Judah's family line might continue through her. After his three sons, that's Judah's three sons, Ur, who got killed for being evil, we don't know why, Onan, who got killed for not continuing the family line, and Shelah, strange name for a man, who completely failed to do this for uh, Tamar. And so she kind of creates a ruse where she dresses up as a prostitute and she traps Judah and Judah sleeps with her and she has a child and then he says, well, she should be burned and then she says, well, hold on, it was, it's me and you have, here's your things that you gave me the time you did it to me. Um, really twisted thing and actually kind of not right. And then there's the Tamar of our teaching tonight and then there's Absalom's daughter, Tamar. And I actually think all three of them show us flawed thinking about women by men. In the first Tamar, the critique is this. Why couldn't your sons create a normal, healthy family with me, and yet you yourself are happy to have sex with a prostitute? Okay? The second Tamar is viewed, as treated, viewed and treated as an object of lust and then cast out. Hardly a great way to treat a woman at all. The third Tamar represents what I think is a human attempt by an offended brother to correct something historical that went wrong, but which ends up placing a burden on someone in the next generation who didn't really ask for that mantle at all. Okay. Number six. Last one. Are you still with me? I know it's hot. Thank you for bearing with me. Number six. Pastor Nick, can I yes. just uh, yeah. point out that First Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 18. Oh, I just had it. These computer things, come on, um, says about your uh, point of uh, that our lives can be redeemed from uh, family history. It says in First Peter chapter one, verse eighteen, for you know it's not with perishable things such as silver and gold you redeem. From the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors. And it's That's like great. you were saying, mm -hmm. that it cuts across mm -hmm. 
it some does. of the things that we've had imported from us. And That's so it's great. kind of just a New Testament reference from the point that you made. Oh, yeah, absolutely fantastic. What was the reference on that again, Mark? Sorry, it's, it was... Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, verse 18. Verse 18. And it's just a great verse to say, you know what, when mm -hmm. it was in my family... Verse and 19 as well, but with the precious blood of the Christ, the Lamb of that blemish or disbet, mm -hmm. he was chosen for the creation of the world for your sake. You know, that's great. It's great. Yeah, yeah. it's great. Rubbish Absolutely. has come down. Christ yeah. has broken it. Fantastic. And just as a little aside to your third, uh, first Tamar, mm -hmm. does actually find herself in the genealogy of Jesus. Yes, she does. Yes, she does. So yeah. even though... And it might be a ministry point for all of us. Some of our families have been tainted by something. That doesn't stop you getting in the line of Jesus. Which is great grace, isn't it? It is, yeah. It is, uh, yeah. Because you know, in fact, yeah, you're right. Because the, the what, I can't remember which genealogy it is, but either Matthew, Matthew or Luke. Yes, yeah, Matthew. Matthew. He specifically mentions four women. One of them is Tamar. And I think another is Rahab. Another's yeah. Bathsheba. And there's a fourth one. And that escapes me who it is. Yeah. But eat Ruth. Ruth. And each of them have a particular position in the sequence to Jesus that perhaps they probably shouldn't have had. Ruth probably being the only case of, of like, like a, maybe a real integrity. But the other three, um, from difficulties or situations, but God redeems those and still blesses that line in order to arrive at Jesus. That's a great point, Pastor Mark. Thank you. So uh, last point, number six. Uh, do you find it hard to forgive others and to receive forgiveness yourself? Hmm. So Absalom simmers for two years over what Amnon did. And then he appointed himself as the instrument of revenge. Except that he didn't do it himself, he got others to do it for him. So my point is, because of the unforgiveness in his own heart, um, it led to him committing murder. And, it, and he murdered his own brother. Paul, we, we covered this uh, another time. I know, I'm sure we have quite recently in one of the other David's uh, uh, sessions. But Paul's letter to the Romans tells us really clearly that it's God's job to sort out repayment for wrongdoing, not ours. Yeah. Romans 12, 19 says this, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So we need to, we need, we need to forgive, sorry, we know we need to forgive someone, when we find ourselves dreaming of their downfall. Shall I say that again? We know we need to forgive someone when we find ourselves dreaming of their downfall. Yeah? Gaudi touched on this a couple of weeks back. Are we allowed a little tiny smile if they, if they have a problem? <laughs> I kind of gave permission, didn't I, for that? Yeah, okay. Okay. The opposite is also true. We know we've forgiven someone fully, when we, when we discover that we haven't replayed their injustices to us in our heads for ages, we suddenly think, oh, God, I haven't thought about them for six months. That's when you know you've really moved on. Okay, so healthy families and healthy churches need to be able to demonstrate and practice forgiveness effectively. So I'm going to kind of wrap up quite a difficult session with a couple of thoughts. This is what I imagine Jesus would say to a sorry and repentant Amnon. Not that I think he was, but let's assume he went in sorrow and he could get some forgiveness from Jesus. Jesus would say, 
Look, as far as the east is from the west, your sins are taken from you. You, Amnon, are now righteous and acceptable because of what I've done for you on the cross. Now sin no more. So I think he would have said. That's a pretty outrageous grace, isn't it? And then Paul says it really well in Corinthians when he writes this. He says, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But as, as Pastor Mark brilliantly pointed out, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What a glorious thing Jesus does for us. So now I can appreciate that we have touched on some probably really hard issues tonight. I do understand that. So we're going to pause a moment, and I'm just going to kind of replay some of those high-level points to you. There are six points there. And I just want, let's just invite the Holy Spirit in to kind of minister to us a little bit. And just maybe one of these points will speak to us tonight. So let me just read these out. And uh, perhaps one of these will be what, the one that you perhaps want to process a little bit with God uh, this evening. So are we confused between the difference, uh, by the difference between love and lust? Is that an issue for us? Have we struggled with that? Where is the advice coming from in your family system? Is it coming from a good place or not such a good place? You know, has the history of that advice been good for you or not really? Thirdly, is there something that your family thinks is normal but you're beginning to recognise perhaps isn't biblical? Fourthly, does your family avoid talking about difficult issues? Fifthly, are you worried secretly that your faults and failings are going to get transmitted to the next generation? And lastly, do you find it hard to forgive others or receive forgiveness for yourself? So there's a couple of responses to tonight, given the nature of what we've talked about. Um, you are really welcome to come and pray uh, with me or Chloe or Mark or Kathy, and I've asked each of those people to just be on point a little bit. We're kind of 10 to 9, so we've got a little bit of time if you need to do that. We'll end in a minute. Um, that may not be something you want to do right now. So if, you, if your sense is, or perhaps our sense is, if you come and see us, that you might need a little bit more time, then perhaps we can book you in and we can talk to you and one of our pastoral team can chat with you. Okay, yeah. Um, well, this is a question and um, like to throw it from the house. Because I believe that we are most times the result of our, our nature and nurture. I mean, we all know that more than aware. We have the nature of God in us after we've accepted Christ. Mm -hmm. But then we have been exposed to a particular way of doing things. You know, perhaps, you know, from the previous generation, you made an example of your mom who's, you know, who was, you know, who, um, your nan who was overly critical of your mom mm -hmm. and it, for some reason. So where do we strike that balance as we get, because at some point we also have to consciously, you know, work on those things we've observed because the problem might be we just don't have any other way of doing things. We don't know any other way of doing those particular things. I don't know if I'm making any sense. No, you're making lots and lots of sense, how definitely. Do you, how do you navigate? Well, I'll offer one thing just to, to, to start us off, and then maybe there's some wisdom in the room. But I would say be open to fresh input from God. Be open to that. Do not close your heart down and be what I would call religious in the wrong sense of, no, this is how, the Bible, you know, this is how things are. 
be a little bit open to prompting by the Spirit that maybe the way that your family and how you've been brought up isn't completely like what God has in mind for you. Maybe there's maybe it's a great family, and I'm no doubt it was. But maybe there's some things here and here and there that could really be lifted up and turned around and made better. So be open to God's input. I mean, like the father who's who's not been there for his son, and then the son probably didn't grow up with the father in his life. Now he's a he's a he's a father. Of course, he's afraid of that happening to him. But for some reason. He begins to treat his children yeah. that same way. I mean, history yeah. is repeating itself. How do you, you know, just need those kind of things in the world, both spiritually and, you know, mentally as well? I think something that's helped Chloe and I as a family uh, raise our boys is that we've looked to those families that are five, ten years on from us, where we've looked at their children and said to ourselves, your children are great. What are you doing that we could copy. Um, and that's helped me because I don't think my parenting was fab. It, it, you know, it had some good bits to it, but I think there's some foundational bits in it were really not right. I think Chloe's parenting was pretty solid by comparison, I would say, you know, more healthy than mine, certainly. But I would say intentionally in our marriage together, we've looked at those families. You know, we've looked at Pastor Martin and Kathy's family and how they've raised their girls. We've looked at other families in, ch- in church that are that little bit further on from us who've got kids five, ten years older than us, our kids. And we've, we've kind of got alongside those families and said, well, how have you made them so settled? You know, what is it that you've done? How have you done discipline? How have you done bedtimes? How have you done schooling? How do you talk about things? And so we've intentionally drawn down from godly families how they do things. And where, where we found things that have really been great, we've adopted them and taken them in and said, no, we're going to just do that because that's just fantastic. Look at the effects that that has produced. So that's something that we would, we would suggest. Also, we don't have to make an idol of culture. Yeah. Like, I, I know that uh, uh, subcultures think, well, ours is the best way. But you have to think about, and we all think that, you know. The reason why the World Cup's a big deal is because people celebrate their own cultures, and that's fine. Yeah. That's fine. But think about the Apostle Paul. Uh, I suppose this is someone else, even uh, today, is that, think about him, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Benjaminite, he knew his heritage, and yet he said this phrase, when I was a child, I thought like a child, and when I became a man, I threw away childish things. Now think about who said that. He was a very well-trained Pharisee, but when he had more revelation about Jesus, he was willing to put those precious things that were in his culture, in his heritage, in his education, Put them aside for kingdom culture and fresh biblical understanding. So really we've got to say, how am I getting my biblical understanding? I'm going to put aside what my favourite dad phrase was, because actually that's not biblical anymore. You know, in my family we always used to, you know, uh, have this, uh, what I call Nike theology. Just do it. Well, sometimes that's not right to just do it. You have to step back and think it through. Pray about it. And as I've grown in the Lord, some of those, even those cute things about my family and my mother, I've put them aside because I've grown out of them. So really we want to move towards kingdom culture, biblical wisdom and maturity, 
What does the Bible say? Even my early interpretations of the Bible have set some of those aside and said, no, yeah. actually, I'm growing in this. And that's really how to overcome your past. Mm. It's not completely thinking, oh man, I, I can never get past this. But gradually, like a chicken coming out of an egg, you peck out of those shells. And Christ has got, as you rightly said, mm. he's already done the ceiling and the foundation so that you can do that. So grow in it, really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Grow in the Bible understanding. Grow in kingdom culture. And don't make an idol of family or kingdom or personal culture. There's some fantastic things about, you know, we were, about how the Brazilians care for each other. Yeah. You know, they all go around their house when everybody's ill and they, you know, do that. Like in Britain, what we do is we stay away and we go, oh no, let me be on my own. It's cultural, you know, but we envy that, don't yeah, we? we? Do, yeah. Now, you can make some things more biblical if you want to, but the thing to do is just don't make an idol of your culture, but do what's right in God. Does that, does that mm, help? Yes, yeah, it's really good, yeah. Mm -hmm. My own Yeah, I would. So I, as yeah. a Christian, you pray. We are talking about mm -hmm. though they are children of God mm -hmm. at that time. But what is the I mean? What is the connection of each of them with that God and just following the God of that person? Mm -hmm. But individually, as a Christian like me, if someone hurts me and I really hurt me and I find it difficult, I go on my knees. God, please help me. It's difficult for me, but. When you pray through, I know that it will clear out of your mind, like you said, that maybe six months later, you just remember an incident that happened, which means you have forgiven that person. Mm -hmm. But it's not so easy in some things that happen, that you will expect that, yes, I've forgiven him or forgiven her, but you will expect that person to have even come and say, oh, what I did was wrong, so not everybody will do that. No, I think that's real wisdom, that the, the, the person who does an injustice to you you have to release them back to God, but in some cases you're never going to get a sorry or a, or a recognition even that they did the wrong thing. And that's why it's between you and God. God wouldn't hang... That's why you need to pray it off. Yeah, you need to keep praying it off. And it's not, you're right to say it's not an easy process. It's absolutely not. And sometimes, one of my experiences of trying to do forgiveness is that I think spiritually I do all the right things, but I think my emotions take a bit longer to catch up. And, and that shows me that, yeah, spiritually I'm ticking the boxes before God, and positionally I'm right, 
but there's still an ache here. And I've got to keep taking that ache to God and keep giving it to him and keep giving it to him. And that slowly chips it away, slowly reduces it down. And one day it definitely is gone. I'm not of the school of theology that says that that I think, well, okay, what do I think about forgiveness? I think is that you can do it and before God it's done. But I think your emotions can take time to catch up. And so you might need to do it several times. So it's both a process and a, a decision. Uh, there's some good wisdom there. Thank you. Yeah, Gabby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know there's not enough time, but mm-hmm. I'm just asking a question. When you talked about um, whereby in a family that you don't talk about things. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes, like, maybe it's the father who's like the head of the family in some cultures, mm-hmm. and he sort of has the final say in many things, mm-hmm. and then it goes down the line. So, like, if you are the last born in that family, you basically don't have. Any say. say. Well, a bit like David. Yeah, yeah. a little mm-hmm. bit like David. At the beginning. So mm-hmm. how can you, and maybe uh, you are the last one, but then you are like maybe the one that no, is in Christ and everybody else is not yeah. in Christ. So how can you voice out or say something to people who like you don't have a say or influence? Because in some cultures it's like mm-hmm. when you're the last one, you don't talk. Okay. I I think I'd echo, I'd answer part of your question by just referring you back to what Pastor Mark said. Don't make an idol of culture. Try to get biblical. And I'd also point out there's a thing called transactional analysis or transactional, what's it called? I think it's, you've got child, uh, adult, parent in a kind of a, a block. And so what you do is you go from being a child to being an adult and then you go from being an adult to being a parent. Now what can sometimes happen is that the what, what doesn't work is when a parent tries to cross-talk to an adult. So parents can talk to children, but they can't really parent another adult. And what would be helpful to remember in situations like that is that really, by the time of coming of age at 18 or 21 or whatever, you are now an adult. And really, actually, everything's on an equal strata between all the people in that family who are adults. None of you are children anymore, potentially. Now, that's hard to live out or think because you're so used to, well, I'm bottom of the tree, I'm the last in the, in the line of siblings who, who, who pays attention to me. But what we see in the story of David, it's a great point you make, actually, because the story of David is God saying, no, I will take the last person in the family who's out in the fields, who has fantastic caliber, and he will, reign my na- he will rule my nation because he's good enough. That's what he says. And I think that's the answer, really, to take back to all those people who have those difficulties, who feel like the overlooked sibling or the last in line, do you know what? God can use you for great, great things, Gaudi. Sorry, great, great things. Did I say that? (laughs) I'm not answering your friend this week, am I? For my friend, not for me. But so anybody who identifies with that, think if you are like David in the beginning, where did David go? Okay, yes, he had lots of problems later on, sure. But the core thing was that Samuel was instructed by God to see the great potential in David and lift him from obscurity to national prestige because he had that calibre in him. Yeah, Michael? Um, I hope this is not off a tangent too much, but 50 years ago, um, there was more sort of, of a, a, a sort of relationship difference between parents and children, adults and children. Adults and children. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now I, I find there's very much a um, right across the board that the children uh, equivalent to the adults, the adults are equivalent to the parents, the parents are equivalent to the children. 
Well, I, I accept a, to, a, to a degree that observation that in certain circumstances, children perhaps have got elevated to a higher level than perhaps they ought to, maybe. Um, one of the things that I quite like about the secondary school that my boys have been going to, not a perfect school by any means, um, but they have this sign on some of their corridors, which is, the teachers are in charge. The teachers are in charge. And I quite like that, because there's this, that's to counter that culture of this sort of entitlement of, of young people to feel like they're in charge of everything before they've been matured enough to make those decisions. So I would, I would agree with you a little bit that our culture has gone that way a bit. But what I would say also is that biblically, it's fine for parents to parent their children properly and healthily to a point of maturity, and then release them to become their own adults and be independent, uh, and then to have that expectation in God that they can then go on and have their own families and become their own parents themselves, and to, to be advocates and champions of that process happening in a healthy way. And the Bible really spells that out and makes that clear and possible, I think, is what I would probably say to that. Um, I don't really believe in this culture of, like, you know, 22 is the goldenest age ever to be. Yeah, it's great to be 22, but I, I like the fact that God's given me so much revelation. Okay, I'm sounding really pompous now. I didn't mean that. What I mean is, I'm very, very grateful for all the revelations God has given me, and I wouldn't swap being 50 for being 22 at all, apart from the fitness side. That would help. Uh, but the wisdom and the revelation and the constant steeping in, in the culture of God that I've had all that time, I wouldn't swap that for anything, because it's just so valuable. And yet that value is there for all of us as we mature in Christ to give to the people below us. Does that, does that help a bit? Yeah, a, sorry, I'll come to you in a, a second. There's a difference isn't there, between respect to older people and giving older people carte blanche when they, if they're acting non-biblically. I will be kindly to a 65-year-old man, but if he's being rude and a butthead, as a pastor, I have to then use my authority to say, I'm sorry, brother, you know, we've got some yeah. biblical things. And I think to answer Gary's question, it's really important that we make a church our family. That we actually, if in our family that we are out, as I was in mine, yeah, me too. That mm -hmm. our church becomes our family, yeah. where we become totally. fathers, yeah. uh -huh. brothers and sisters, mm -hmm. friends to each other. And we, and we have those relationships where if we're not heard at home, we can be heard in the church. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to a degree. And just to echo that quickly, but then we'll take your question. I would totally echo that, Mark. And I, I would say that the body of Christ has healed me immensely of the family dysfunction that I've grown up with. Immensely so. The word of God, the, the community of believers... Uh, the teaching, the wisdom, that has been totally like the family that I've gravitate, gravitated towards and into because of its health and because of God at the centre of it. And it's r redeemed and sorted out all sorts of garbage from my background that I was led to believe was good and great. Um, I'll give you one example of that was the concept in my family of, oh yeah, your intelligence will get you through life. Mm, yeah, doesn't stop you from being lonely. Doesn't, st doesn't stop you from still making stupid mistakes. Even though you're intelligent, you can still make stupid mistakes. So, you know, that philosophy isn't necessarily the be-all and end-all. You need God at the helm. You need church. You need that healthiness there. You had a question, didn't you? Yeah? Yeah, it was more of a comment. Wasn't David illegitimate? From Psalm 51, he says his mother's sin. So we get the impression that the reason why he's out there 
far from the others are not liked by the others because he's a legitimate... Do you know what? I don't necessarily agree with that. I think what David is referring to in Psalm 51, when he says, surely I was sinful from birth, I actually think that's not a reference to his illegitimacy. Although it's, it, it's a possibility. I'll, I'll accept that. It's definitely a possibility. What I think it's referring to is, what the, is the biblical doctrine of original sin, which is that everybody has sin right from the very beginning. You know, the Pharisees even taught that you could sin in the womb. Although, like, how you would do that, I'm not sure. You know, like, have a bad thought about your mother or something. I don't know. But they, they taught that. And I, I know it's kind of funny, but I take your point. But I think it's... But he also says in Psalm 139, but you, you, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So he's referring to his origin much less than the person, in a sense, it, herself or himself who fathered him. So I, I wouldn't hang too much on illegitimacy. There's a, there's a potential case for it. I think it's much more to do with, man, we all struggle with sin in ourselves and of ourselves, but we need God to help us overcome that. Also, Tracy, if you look at the end of the book of Ruth, gives you David's genealogy, uh, which... Well, the genealogies are... Yeah, the genealogies are placed through the fathers, though. So, Obed... So, saying that it could be his father that committed adultery. So, what I'm saying is, I think they're saying that his mother's never mentioned... Yeah, but your point is that there's some shadow because of that. And I'm saying that the grace of God and God's no, no, faith on David... I'm not saying it's, it's a problem, because obviously God keeps picking people in that situation yeah. to prove to us that it doesn't matter what you are, mm-hmm. your background or anything. If you have a heart for him, all of that is wiped out. Yeah. I'm more saying it because then you can see mentally how he assents to what happens to his daughter, whether he doesn't say anything about yeah. it because it's a normality, possibly. Yeah, yeah, we could see that, yeah. In in yeah. in that vein, yes. just on that vein, before we take another one, yeah. who was Boaz's mother? Anyone know who who she was? Rahab. Boaz, a model of gentlemanliness, comes from who? Rahab. Now Rahab gets completely redeemed by God in terms of that telling, you know, uh, Joshua and, and yeah, that right there is the line. That is the proof that God can change the jigsawing totally and utterly forever. Yeah? You don't have to have the generational thing at all. I'm sorry, I just want to add a little thing about culture of this nation at all. I don't believe it's the culture of what is happening. It's the law that has been brought into the culture. I think it's the law that has disorganized. Are you saying the law or the love? The law the law of the land, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. law of the Western land is the one that has come over the culture. I don't believe the, the, what the children are doing now or to the adults and all that is because it's part of the culture. It's not. I believe it's the law. Well, I think it's a mixture. I don't think it's just the law. I think it's a mixture. I think, I think it's a mixture of things. I think it's some cultural biases. I think you've got secularism. I think you've got the removal of God from lots of quarters of society. Um, But I also think you've got um, less emphasis on strong parenting. And so there's, uh, you know, children are very much product of good parenting. And if that parenting isn't happening well, then kids will be 
kind of growing up without those models and guides to go from, and so becoming self-determining. I'm not sure I completely agree that it's the law that's responsible for that. You know, the history of our laws in Britain are very Christian, actually. It's only in the last 40, you know, perhaps in the 60s, they started to go much less biblical, particularly with the introduction of the Abortion Act in 1967. That was not a godly thing at all. And so since then, we've had a lot of laws that have kind of started to progressively tinker with the edges of that fabric, and then more, more, less and less the edges and more and more the centre, and now we have legalised gay marriage and so on in our society. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Somebody else had another hand up? And the, Marta, yeah, you want to... I mean, Quickly, there was a and then you, Les, to finish, if that's okay, because we're ten past nine. says, um, uh, when David sinned with Bathsheba, he says, the sword, the sword I don't know if they use the word never, mm-hmm. won't depart from your house. Your house. Mm-hmm. So could it have been before, I suppose, it, like Pastor Mark said, we confess and God redeems us. But that was a strong word that was said about David's mm-hmm. household. Before. Yes, it was. Maybe... In a way, how does it apply to the confession and being redeemed and that word being said? Okay, so what you're saying, Marta, is, okay, because of what you've done, the sword will never depart your yeah, house. That's in the Bible, how yeah. does that apply to us now, like if we've sinned? So I think the best way to understand that is that sin can be completely forgiven by God, but that sometimes there are some unavoidable consequences that can't be undone. That, I think, is probably the best way to understand that. And I think we tackled that on one of the nights when we looked at that issue. Um, so, and you can do quite a lot to reduce the consequences, and you can certainly be fully forgiven. And if you face those consequences squarely, that's the best way, in God, that's the best way to reduce them down. But sometimes there are things that simply can't be undone because of, does, does that help? And I think that's what that story says. Last, last point, Les, did you want to finish? Just ask yeah. one more question. I think the statement you just made kind of plays into what I was going to say. I, I do find your view on... Um, generational curses under grace quite refreshing because sort of living in London um, one of the things that was quite apparent was only a lot of used to play Monopoly there was a road called Old Kent Road you might remember it but the Old Kent Road is actually a real road in London and if you go to the Old Kent Road it's it's a very long road stretching into South London and there's literally over the last 20 years there's been literally probably over 100 churches that have started and are now on the Old Kent Road. And a lot of these churches are independent churches which make their primary focus deliverance services. <laughs> and um, some of these churches have very, very bizarre um, uh, interpretation of scripture when it comes to spiritual warfare, etc. Mm-hmm. One of the dominant things I became aware of was their views on generational curses, where they made it very, very explicit that people could, even though they were saved, could be held under significant bondage because of the sins of their forefathers, etc. So I found what you talked about quite refreshing in the sense that grace has the power to overturn Totally, yeah. And mm-hmm. the fact that even though there may be consequences, the more you draw closer to God is, is, is the less those consequences are in terms of the severity. And I think that's quite, quite an important well, def- in terms of balance. Definitely. And you only have to look at Rahab to Boaz. to rel- And that's an Old Testament example, not a New Testament example, to realise just how unbiblically sound it is to say that you've got a load of generational curses hanging over you. You can still be a Boaz and have a mother like Rahab because of God's grace in your life, totally, yeah. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word that kind of cuts through the joints and the marrow and gets right down to the issues. Lord, I pray for anyone tonight that's 
had deep questions raised in their minds by what we've looked at from 2 Samuel 13. And I pray your peace and your clarity uh, and your, uh, your ever-ready heart that wants to take us forward and upward uh, in them, Lord. Yeah. I pray your comfort over them, your wisdom over them, and your clarity over them. So we thank you uh, tonight for uh, our session, Lord. Amen. 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 Amen.